What's happening, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter. Yep, you guessed it, hanging out on the Matt Baxter Show. I'm hanging out with Charles Fisher. Now, I've done a lot of these podcasts, I don't know, a couple hundred so far, and um, this is one that uh, I definitely, for a fact, know that I was not smart enough to be on this podcast. Uh, Charles uh, is the man. Charles is the CEO and founder of Unlearn.ai, and Unlearn.ai helps uh, basically biopharma companies uh, better ethically, more ethically, uh, and efficiently create uh, and generate machine learning models to help uh, produce uh, better results for uh, drug companies. And uh, their whole mantra is how do we help drug companies do it more ethically, uh, more efficiently, um, and just some of the uh, complexities that are involved in Charles's work and the impact that they are having is just unbelievable. So I am just proud and thankful to have an opportunity to uh, chat with him and learn quite a bit. And overall, uh, the impact that he is having uh, and the brains that he has is just unbelievable. So Charles, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with me. And I hope anybody who's interested in machine learning, biopharma, biopharma, pharmaceuticals, uh, takes a deep dive into this podcast and follows along what Charles is doing. So thank you so much. And I hope everybody enjoys this podcast just as much as I did. Charles, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. So you're based in uh, sunny California, yeah? That's right. Yeah, I split my time between San Francisco and Lake Tahoe area. Uh, I mean, two horrible, horrible spots to be. I mean, talk about amazing, <laughs> amazing spots for you uh, to be at. So is there is it work-related that causes you to go back and forth? Or what's, what's kind of the, the back and forthness of that? Yeah, you know, I'm one of these people who escaped the city during the uh, pandemic. So uh, our office is in San Francisco. So I spend time there a couple weeks a month to, to work, uh, but otherwise try to escape to the to the country. Dig it. I love it. So, uh, I mean, give me give me your background. Give me give me the story. Give me uh, kind of lead up to what, where you're at today. Sure. Um, so I'm a uh, I'm a biophysicist by training. I, so instantly, I'm not intelligent enough to have this conversation. <laughs> um, so I went, uh, I went to college at the University of Michigan, um, and I studied. Uh, so I majored in biophysics. It was one of the first, the first class they like to major in biophysics at at Michigan. Uh, so they. they so came, yeah. Fun little fact, real quick. I I grew up in Saline, Michigan. Oh okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah so uh, so right off of Ann Arbor, Saline Road. So we're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're We've got a lot of Ann Arbor ties then. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm from East Lansing, actually, originally. That's why I grew up in East Lansing. Um, and oh, no way. I mean, I, I, I truly, uh, when we reached out about talking about this podcast, I had no idea about the Michigan ties. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Now, I did not study uh, biophysicists or anything like that during my undergrad, but <laughs> that's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, yeah, so I studied biophysics at Michigan. Um, and then uh, after... Um, Undergrad, I went to do a PhD at Harvard, uh, also in biophysics. Um, and then after graduating, I did a postdoc at Boston University in uh, physics. So um, at this point, like I probably wanted to be a professor um, and I really doubled down on it. So I did a second postdoc, like two postdoc is a real clear clue that I really just wanted to be a professor. So I did a, a second postdoc also in physics um, at a university in Paris. Um, and in part that was really just, I wanted to go have a, you know, experience living in another country and 
Yeah. I was I was about to say Par- Paris screams. Yes, I'm sure it's the education, but it's also Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so then after, well, actually, while I was living in Paris, um, I started to to get curious about the dark side. Right? What do people actually do working at companies, and might that be an interesting direction? And I had a, a friend of mine um, who uh, went I went to grad school with, who had uh, joined Pfizer. Um, working uh, as one of their earlier machine learning scientists. Um, and he kind of recruited me, convinced me to come back uh, to leave academia and then to move back to Boston to work at Pfizer. So I worked at Pfizer as a uh, uh, computational biologist, I think was my title, but I was doing a split between a couple things. But a lot of it was applying machine learning approaches to these problems in clinical trials. So at the time, um, I, I so, so I'm certainly not intelligent enough to understand bio, you know, physicists or anything like that. But machine learning, I can comprehend a little bit from my startup background. But from from kind of the uh, bare bones of it, what would be sort of the idiot's guideline to what you were working on when it came to machine learning with that? Obviously, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the problem was pretty simple. Uh, the solution might be challenging. It's always the case. Like the problem <laughs> had better be simple, uh, but the solution might be challenging. So the um, uh, the basic idea is you would run like a phase two clinical trial. So, you know, clinical trials start phase one, which is basically looking at safety. Um, and once you understand the dose and, you know, what what is a safe dose, you move on to what's called a phase two clinical trial. You might enroll maybe like 200 people or so. And these are now going to be patients who actually have whatever indication you're trying to treat. You give them the drug and you're looking for basically early signs that the drug might be effective. Um, and then uh, if it is effective or if you see those early signs, you move on to confirm that in a much larger phase three clinical trial. And then you can file based on the results of that. Um, so a lot of what we would do is we would um, take data from these phase two clinical trials and you have a bunch of information about the patients and some patients uh, you give a drug seem to get better and others don't. And so there's this sort of question, can you predict who actually will benefit from the drug? Uh, is there some way to, to use machine learning to, to do those kinds of predictions? That's a lot of the work that I was, that I was doing at Pfizer. I love it. Um, and so obviously there's, you know, when, when the, there's, there's occasionally stigmas, not all the time, occasionally stigmas around, you know, farmer's bad, farmer's bad, but sounds like you saw a world that was actually entertaining. Sounds like actually doing a lot of good in the world. I mean, what, what was your take on some of the goods and bads, uh, of what people believe to be true about big pharma? And obviously there's a reality of, uh, Hey, this is actually really cool, really powerful work. Sure. Um, Okay, so most of what people believe about Big Pharma is ridiculous. Uh, some of it is not. Some of it is not ridiculous. Um, but but a lot of it is. A lot of it's really just conspiracy theory. And you see this in a, a million things. People will say like, oh, well, they just choose not to find a drug that cures this disease because it would be better for them. Like, that's ridiculous. The truth of the matter is that we don't really understand biology. Like, just like as a science, we don't understand that much about biology. And drug development, the process of discovering and developing drugs is much harder than most people understand. Um, uh, you know, you're talking about when you actually get to the point of a clinical trial, right? So we're going to take a drug, we're going to put it in a person, and we're going to try to see how well it works. Um, you've already gone through years of experiments where you've looked at things in test tubes, you've looked at things in cell culture, you've looked at things in animal models, all of that stuff's already been done. And all of that has gotten you to the point to say, I think this drug might work, let's test it in people. 
And nine out of 10 times after doing all that work, the drugs still doesn't work. The drugs are not effective, right? So nine out of 10 times, we're just wrong. I think that's probably the biggest misconception or it's not even a misconception. It's just people aren't aware of that. You don't interact with a pharmaceutical company ever, right? You interact with CVS or Walgreens where you pick up your drug, you get it from the, from your you know, prescription from your doctor, but you don't really know what happened to create it. Um, and so, yeah, most of the time it's, it's really, really, really challenging. And so, you know, the majority of people that I interacted with, uh, oh, let me rephrase that. All of the people that I have interacted with at <laughs> Pfizer were just scientists, right? People are just scientists um, trying to solve these hard problems. It's actually, usually being met with a, with a lot of failure. You know, I think that where you know pharma gets a lot of uh, you know aside from that where they get negative press and where they deserve it is on the pricing pricing stuff, right? Um, you know, it's very clear that you know there are issues around pricing of drugs, particularly in the United States. I don't have a solution for it, um, but that you know that that I I think that the the idea that somehow um, this is an easy problem that pharmaceutical companies are choosing not to solve for profit motive, I find to be ridiculous. It's uh, good to hear that perspective. And I, I probably have a little bit of a unique access to, so obviously per- Perigo in Michigan, I live in Grand Rapids now, Perigo is right in our backyard. So I see certainly some of the you know broader implications of a large drug company that does have a lot of powerful impact, not to mention a lot of the, uh, it's funny, we're, with my startup, uh, I've talked to a lot of, you know, capital providers, capital management companies in the area, and they kind of choose between either investing in startups or investing in phase two, phase three clinical trial drugs. And it's fascinating to hear what they've talked about because with phase two, phase three clinical drugs, there's obviously huge upside, but it's a very black and white investment and chances are it's not going to work, right? It's uh, It either passes or fails and moves on to the next phase. And if it does really lucrative and really cool opportunity. If it doesn't, that's kind of the end of that. So it's been fascinating to kind of learn the other side from an investment standpoint. So I I find it really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, uh, you know, being at the kind of the intersection of technology and and bio uh, at Unlearn. Um, You know, the the investment landscape is very different because, uh, you know, with a biotech company, you really don't get to prove your product along the way. Uh, right. Like a phase two clinical trial is still really expensive. It might cost you like $50 million to run a phase two clinical trial, maybe more. Um, and phase three clinical trials typically cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It's actually pretty un- unusual for biotech companies to even run them. Uh, they're so expensive. The only thing that like kind of the only companies that can even afford to run them are like big pharma companies typically. Um, but nonetheless, like it's it's a very at least in this very different landscape where biotech companies kind of go along for a while. You just don't know if they work until really late, actually. Um, whereas tech companies, right, you're building this product along the way and testing it over constantly testing it, actually, and looking for these signals of it working. So they, it leads to these kind of very different business models. Yeah, that's right. So, so before we dive into unlearn, so you're in Paris now, and you're looking at the dark side of okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm considering not going into ed- education and teaching, but actually going to, you know, and, and getting a job or starting a company or something like that. So, where, where, where did you go from there? Uh, sure. So, um, so I, I never really considered teaching. I would, I wouldn't say I considered working at a university as a professor. Oh, uh, so there I you go. Research, right? I didn't want to teach. Uh, you know, uh, so I wanted to do research. Um, and so, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, so I went to Pfizer, um, as a, as a researcher there. Um, and then, uh, all of, all of my academic research from Michigan to Harvard, to Boston university, to, uh, in Paris, and then to Pfizer, all of that was on biology. It was at the intersection 
of sort of theoretical physics and machine learning and biology and trying to combine these different concepts from those fields. Um, but I got an opportunity to move out to San Francisco to work at a virtual reality company. And that just sounded interesting. <laughs> so, so, so I kind of left behind biology for a while, moved to San Francisco as a machine learning engineer at this VR company. Um, and then uh, didn't stay there particularly long. Um, I kind of got felt the pull back to biology pretty quickly. And so ended up leaving about five years ago, a little over five years ago now um, to start Unlearn. Um, I love it. I love it. So what was the... Uh... What was the premise, sort of uh, the adolescent idea? I mean, so when when you when you move back, where you're like, all right, I want to I want to start something, and this is it, or had you been sort of brewing on this idea, this problem, sort of walking through the adolescent stage to to unlearn? Yeah, I had been brewing on it forever. Um, so maybe if we kind of go back, right? Like I had this career as a research scientist doing uh, computational modeling mathematical modeling within biology starting uh you know probably started that work in like 2005 i think would have been my first. okay real real quick so i i gotta ask this during your mental downtime are you solving complex problems like if you're just sitting laying in bed and you can't sleep or like if you're going for a swim or a run or something with mental downtime What's running through your head? Because my brain and your brain are very different. And I know what's running through my head and it's nothing to do with anything of complex research problems. Uh, well, I'm a startup founder now, right? So, <laughs> so maybe we do talk, think about the same stuff. What's this mental downtime? I'm not familiar <laughs> yeah. uh, with that. Um, you know, I, I do still spend a some of my time um, uh, at, at Unlearn thinking about research. I do spend some of it. That's more for my own sanity. It's not necessarily, I probably shouldn't, uh, like in terms of comparative advantage, you know, we have teams of people to do that, but uh, I just like to. Uh, so, but it's, it's a minority of my time now. I love it. All right. So you had this, uh, uh, sorry, I cut, I cut you off with that oh, yeah, sidebar. So, so, like, so, what so was the, what was the, the adolescent idea, the genesis of, of online? Yep. Right. Okay. So yeah, so I had been, yeah, I'd been doing all that research. Um, th that's a difficult area. Uh, it's not just a, like a difficult research area. So it's, it's a weird area to be sort of doing mathematical modeling within biology because you're, you're in a minority. Um, so you you kind of actually fit nowhere uh, within biology. Most, you know, bi mathematics in biology is still not widely used computational methods not widely used people don't have to take those things within within classes um they're growing uh but it's still kind of a minority of what of what people do and then within physics if you're working on biophysics like when we would go to the big physics conference the main conference would have it's in the big building biophysics would be in like some small little building next door you know um so you're kind of like uh an outsider in both fields actually uh by by working on biophysics um and then, you know, I go to, to Pfizer and machine learning is taking off, right? It's taking off. This is, you know, 2015. This is, everyone is going after deep learning at this time. And, you know, Pfizer had a really small group, um, but we were not, it wasn't that important. Like the truth is that, that, that the company didn't think of it as, as to be that important at the time. Uh, even though like uh, all uh, Google and other companies were like reinventing their business around AI. Sorry, rough, roughly what year, like what time frame is this? 2015. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. yes, yep. So, um, and that's not unique. 
right? So within the space, you look at you know, who is in leadership positions at these companies, at biotech companies, at pharma companies, um, and you basically have biologists, you have medical doctors, you have accountants, uh, and a lot of the C-suite. Um, you know, so you have people from those backgrounds. Technologists are not represented. Um, and technology is frankly not considered to be that important. I mean, how do how are people going to consider it important if they're not that familiar with it? So this whole career going from all of the research that I did in kind of computational modeling, AI methods, applications within biology, it was very frustrating. It's very, very frustrating to be a researcher and to spend an enormous amount of time uh, trying to, uh, to develop these new methods, understand these me methods, working really hard on your research problems. And kind of the field doesn't care about it. Like it is, it is very frustrating. Um, and so, you know, when we, when I, when we start, set out to start Unlearn, we had kind of this, this, um, this view of there as being a hole in, in machine learning research, because the majority, the fact that, you know, as a total sliver of biology research, sort of this machine learning application of biology is a very small sliver of that. What that means is that not that to a large extent, not that much research has been done on it relative to other areas of machine learning, right? So if you look at the sort of broad landscape of machine learning, you know, it's, you've got Google, you've got, uh, you know, DeepMind, you've got, um, uh, you know, Baidu, Facebook, you have all of these companies that are really driving that research. And most of it is on internet company problems, right? Self-driving cars, object recognition, natural language processing, not that much on, on uh, biology. And that's changed a little bit, like DeepMind did protein folding and stuff, but it's still, still not that much. So we thought that since no one was really working on that area, that if we focused on how to do machine learning, uh, applied to sort of from these clinical style electronic health record style data that we would have to invent and develop interesting machine learning technologies to do that. And this would be a way of driving machine learning research. Uh, it, so it was a reverse problem. Like we really thought that by focusing on the clinical research areas, we would develop interesting machine learning technologies. It was not, we have these interesting machine learning technologies that will help us in clinical research. It was really reverse of that. That that's where it started. Um, and then, you know, the development of taking that kind of idea of really a research question and turning it into a business is really a process of, of trial and error. So, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start kind of adolescent dumb base question, then hopefully get a little bit more complex. Uh, walk through the dif difference separate from the biology implications, but the difference between machine learning and AI to the average person. What would most people not, or I guess, w walk through your interpretation of, of the definitions of those two, and then I want to I want to I want to I want to expand upon that. Sure. So machine learning is a subfield of artificial intelligence. Um, it's a piece of it um, where the goal is to have. Um, computer programs that are able to learn from data without requiring a lot of human intervention, preferably zero human intervention. So if you think about, you know, what a statistician would do is you would have all of these data, you would, you know, look at different types of plots, you would do exploratory data analysis to understand what's going on, you would quality control the data, that's all manual human stuff. Then you're thinking about, okay, 
what I what I've learned from all of these things. Um, how am I going to model these relationships? And then what are going to be the methods that I'm going to use to estimate them? And machine learning is trying to get a computer to just do those things. Like that's kind of the goal of it. Um, and then artificial intelligence to me is really saying that we want to have a computer that can reason. Um, that can reason maybe like a human can or maybe better than a human can. Um, and, uh, and, and act. So reason and act. Um, and so machine learning, the ability to learn from data, from experience, from your environment, that's a part of reasoning. So that's a part of artificial intelligence, but definitely not the whole thing. So, okay, dig it. And then from, well, real quick on that, uh, the same people who probably think all pharma is bad are probably the same people who assume all, of hum, you know, uh, human, uh, machine learning and AI is bad too. What would be like a very good for the world or just like, a very good use case of, of, of simple machine learning that most people probably pass over or don't even think about. Do you have an I'm example? Not, I'm not sure what you mean by simple machine learning. Um, uh, sorry, bad, bad use of terms. Okay. What, what, would be, what would be a use case in the real world of machine learning? I mean, there's, there's, there's many. Uh, people are constantly interact. Use your phone. It's using machine learning. Like when you type something in and it says, hey, maybe this is your next word. That's machine learning. When it does a correction to you know some typo that you've made, that's machine learning. Uh, like so, all of those things are are based around machine learning models. That like when you go to Google Translate and you type things in in, in one language, it translates to another. That was done by machine learning. That's not like hand coded rules as to like here's how you translate the sentence anymore. Now it's just you take in a whole bunch of books in English and a whole bunch of books in French and you shove it to a machine learning model and it let it learn how to translate back and forth. Um, so all of these technologies that people interact with today under the hood are based on machine learning. Yep. All right. Dig it. So then take that a, next, a, a, a step further for, for kind of where you've, you've spent so much of your time is machine learning meets biology. So what would be, uh, you know, similar, I don't know if you, you have one, but it, what would be a similar example of, uh, of, a, of a use case of machine learning meets biology? And obviously this is where you've, you've spent your career, so this is where you're an expert on. But um, yeah, I guess for, for, for kind of the audience sake, what would be an example of that? So there are, what I would say is that machine learning for these other fields is much more mature than is machine learning for biology. So if you say like, well, where might I encounter things that are machine learning applied to problems in biology that impact my life? And the answer is not that many of those things are probably impacting your life yet today. They will, we believe they will in you know, 10 or 15 years from now, but today still not that much. So there's a couple of things that people are working on. Um, one of them would be a drug discovery. Um, so you can say, uh, you know, we have some particular disease. We maybe want to know what is going to be the right gene, the right enzyme to target uh, with a drug that's going to be able to cure that disease. So trying to identify those different kinds of targets. We also have companies working on once you have identified that target, um, how could you design a, uh, a molecule, design a chemical that's going to be able to, to be a, a good potent drug against that particular gene? Um, and, uh, and so, so, so then you can move, you know, kind of up the chain to what we do, which is once you have a drug, how can you really efficiently figure out whether it works or doesn't work? Um, and that's always works or doesn't work is always comparison. So you're comparing that to some existing treatment. Um, and that's where we can bring in machine learning because we can get a lot of data on how patients respond to these existing treatments. 
Um, and then you can even take that farther and say, like, could you uh, think about having clinical decision support? So you, so you're going to have a um, a computer basically that's going to recommend treatment options to your physician. Maybe it's going to say, you know, if you give this patient treatment A, there's likely to have whatever outcome versus treatment B, they're likely to have a different outcome, and then they can use that information. So within medicine. I think that there is absolutely a future where sort of machine learning and artificial intelligence are really used across the entire value chain. Now, when does that future happen? I don't think it's as it's probably as quickly as people think it is. There is this um, you know generic pattern that people uh, overestimate technological process progress in the short term, but underestimate it in the long term. Um, so, like, where is it today or in the next two years? I, I think we're seeing, like, special applications where you can solve some really specific problem. Uh, but where is it going to be in 20 or 30 years? I think it's going to be quite quite broadly applied. So the mission of – what would you say is the mission of Unlearn? Um, well, there's a, there's a variety of answers to that question. Uh, it's exactly to kind of where, where, you, uh, where you draw the line. You know, what our main goal – well, let me let me maybe say what's my main goal. My main goal is to really make biology and medicine a uh, computation first science. I think that everything is kind of turning into a computation first science, and I think that biology and medicine should too. Um, and that's going to take kind of a while. Um, and then if you kind of translate that to, to unlearn, we're basically thinking about how can we use computational methods. Uh, to generate evidence that we can use to understand if treatments are effective, how effective they are, and for who are they effective. Those are the main questions that we're really focused on. And we do this by developing, we're working on a, a technology that we call a digital twin of, of a patient. And the, the term digital twin comes from engineering. So in engineering, you build a computational model of a device. And I don't mean like of some device in the abstract, like I have a computational model of iPhones. I mean a specific device. I have a computational model of my iPhone that is actually getting data from my iPhone. And that, so I'm representing that in a computer. And then I could do all kinds of stuff with that. I could, you know, ask like, well, how is it operating? How would it operate under these different conditions? And we want to be able to do that with people. So we want to be able to build a computer model of an individual person and use that to understand uh, what would happen to that person under different situations. Um, and so we, we call that this you know, digital twin. The difference, of course, is that in a, you know, something like an engineering application, you have a blueprint. And so you can build this model that has all of the pieces and how they interact with each other. Um, a human body has about 37 trillion cells in it. So, so the idea that we, yeah, the idea that you could actually build like a model that has each piece and how they interact with each other is is ridiculous. Um, there's that's there's no way that we could do that. So rather than than taking that approach, trying to build up this 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 reductionist mechanistic model, we take a top down approach and we use machine learning. So we're basically trying to train these machine learning models to be able to simulate uh, you know health outcomes for patients for individual patients. Um, that's that's really our long-term goal. And then today, we're applying those approaches within clinical trials, where our goal is to be able to help pharma companies run clinical trials that require fewer patients. So you don't need to enroll as many patients into the trial, but deliver really the same results as a much larger trial. So statistically, we want them to be the same. 
you want to interpret them basically exactly the same way. But, you know, if you could decrease the size of your trial by 20 or 30 percent, you can cut a year off of your clinical trial timeline. Uh, you could save uh, a significant amount of, of money as well. So is like when, when you think about like a, a, a digital, what do you call it? A, a twin? Yes. A digital twin. Yeah. So when you think about a digital twin, I mean, would this go as far as saying I could run one simulation of if I, you know, let's let's take diet as an example or sleep as an example and applied a certain amount of sleep to this person versus, you know, an hour less a day. I mean, could you go as far that, you know, that extreme with it? Or is this kind of more scenario based? Like I have this cancer and I'm going to apply this drug to this cancer and play out that model. I mean, how far could that theoretically go? Well, the, again, I'd say this, how, how far has it gone and how far could it theoretically go are, I think, very different questions, right? Right, yeah. Um, and and yeah, I, I probably that, know the answer to how far it could go, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. There, is, there isn't really a distance. But. I don't think that there's a distance as far as it could go eventually, right? I, I think that, again, overestimate technology in the short run, underestimate technology in the long run. Um, right. You know, so where is that going to be 200, 300 years from now? I mean, I think that 200, 300 years from now, it will be like medicine will be solved. <laughs> that's sort of, right. sort of that's sort of how I would would, would think about it. Um, well, so really, really, what I want to do is I want my digital twin to go through five capital raises as a startup founder versus yeah. eight, and see yeah, how yeah. how many how many decades I take off my life. That's all right. I really care yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so you know, um, we, what we do today is you know we build models for patients with specific diseases. So it's not like a pan model of all people that anyone can just be put into and it will tell you like all of their outcomes. It is, it's not like that at all. It's like we have a model for patients with Alzheimer's disease. We have a model for patients with ALS, for example. Um, and then you collect information from a individual patient with, say, ALS. You input that into the model and then you can use it to simulate different outcomes. And now those simulations, there's, there's kind of two pieces to it. One is there's uncertainty. Um, so it's not in the sense that we could say this person is going to have exactly this uh, outcome in six months. We don't know exactly what outcome that person's going to have in six months, but we can give a range. Um, and then the other piece, though, is that sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time, simulations are wrong. So anytime you try to build a computer simulation today, it's not perfect. Um, and so that that is kind of another piece piece of the puzzle. So so we have to deal with this this challenge that as we are trying to develop this technology, we will, it will not be perfect it, and it will be creating uncertain predictions. And so um, the other piece of, of our work uh, is we have a, a robust uh, biostatistics research group as well that is thinking about how to take these uh, predictions that we generate from these machine learning models and design clinical trials that take them into account. So we're trying to say, you know, can we design a clinical trial that has this uh, the ability to be smaller so we can we can reduce the number of patients that are required, but we can still guarantee certain uh, properties of it around how rigorous uh, the evidence will be, right? So we say, well, well, what if our model's really biased? We get this is a big question that people have in, in AI research now is you're learning from data and maybe your data is taken from just one one population. Maybe we have data that's entirely from the UK. That's actually true for a lot of uh, medical stuff. The UK has a really great uh, medical uh, records uh, 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 kind of data set that's available for people. And so a lot of people just develop models with that. Well, how, like, what if you go and try to apply that model built in the UK into like China? Will it work? 
is racist. So, so um, that's a real right. Well, I, was, I was about to say, in some ways, it'd be an advantage because if you're looking at UK data, you can then go and say, hey, for people taking this drug or this, this, you know, this solution in the UK, it's a great use case, but obviously it has a pitfall or downfall when it comes to like broader population use cases. So I could see how yeah. I totally get it. So there's this question around bias, right? And we've seen this in a lot of different of different applications, right? Where you've had like computer vision systems, uh, that facial recognition that recognize like uh, people differently depending on their race and ethnicity, like they can do so, it. So, so I'll, right? I'll give you a fascinating one. Uh, there, there was a huge use case with um, uh, facial recognition and video interviewing. Um, so I, I work in the, the HR tech space when it comes to hiring and sort of the facial recognition and then the interpretation of that person based upon some of the things that it picked up on that. They, they came back and there, there was a pretty significant lawsuit about bias and where the data came from that made some of those predictions. I mean, it's oh, yeah. fascinating stuff. Right. So, you know, our view, my view is that it's going to be really challenging to, to guarantee that in the actual model itself that makes predictions is unbiased. I, I, when I say very challenging, I would say basically impossible. You can't guarantee that. <laughs> so, so, so that leads us to, this other, to the, a second question, which is, um, well, maybe you can't guarantee that the predictions are unbiased, but maybe we can guarantee that the clinical trial that leverages those predictions is unbiased. And it turns out you can do that. Um, so that you, that we can provide actual mathematical results. We can prove theorems about these clinical trial designs where you can essentially protect the user from different uh, uh, problems that the models have. Um, so we can de design these. And, and the key aspect about this is that these the clinical trials that we work on are randomized. So you have some patients who are being randomly assigned to receive your experimental treatment and some other patients who are being randomly assigned, say, a placebo. And uh, then you're creating these predictions for all of those patients. And because you have this, this randomization, I'm saying something very hand wavy here, but essentially if there is bias, it will cancel out. Um, and so you can actually, you can actually prove all these things that like, even when there is bias, even when the model is making mistakes, that won't feed, feed down into the, into impacting the results of the clinical trial. So this is one of the key reasons why we chose clinical trials as the, as the initial first application, because if you're thinking about taking some, one of these, you know, models and saying, we're going to use this on this individual person, like I'm going to go into the doctor and the model is going to make these recommendations and the doctor's going to follow them. That model better be pretty damn good. Right. <laughs> right. You don't want that model telling the doctor to do the wrong thing. Um, yeah, that model better be pretty spot on. It better be spot on. But within clinical trials, it turns out that you can get a lot of value out of these models, um, even if they're not perfect, um, that you can generate real value, time savings to the pharmaceutical companies, value to the patients participating in these trials, um, value to the entire medical research ecosystem uh, that's, that you know, could be you know, years off uh, you know, getting drugs to market um, with it, while, while actually being totally insensitive to all of the imperfections of these models, um, which is a very unique, very unique situation. It's one of the reasons why it's, it's one of our first focus areas. I love it. I love it. So um, I like how you answered the question of kind of what your mission is within the context of the, co the, the company. So let's take, it, let's take that question uh, and, and, and expand on it even further. What is your broader mission and what you're trying to accomplish in this life? Oh, you mean when I said make mathematics, uh, make, make biology a uh, computation first 
science yeah is that what you mean something like that yeah 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 that, i mean that that for me that that really actually is that that's a big part of it um i love I it i think that's um i think that to to a large degree um interdisciplinary research is really required um you know we want to be able like as a as, when you're on this when you're on sort of our side of the table doing computational methods you're constantly you should, had better be constantly working with people coming from the clinical research background coming from the biology background um, I've worked in different areas on ecology, work with ecologists, you know, when you're working on molecular things, work with molecular biologists, and you're always working with, with that side of the table. Um, you have to understand the biology, you have to understand uh, the, the medical context to be able to apply these methods. Um, but it should go the other way too, <laughs> you know, so, so, so it should be, again, that, that I feel like, you know, these, these methods have a lot to offer um, and we're, they're only getting better. Um, so even though we're able to solve these problems today, where they're going to be 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, um, I think is, is much, much more advanced than a lot of people today give, give credit for, um, particularly scientists, maybe not like, you know, regular people, but I, I guess like scientists tend to tend to think, be skeptical. They, they think that AI is not going to progress like it will. So I think 40, 50 years from now, it's going to be a, a huge uh, change to, to really across society, um, but particularly to this area. And, you know, I think that I'm kind of lucky and all of the people doing machine learning research right now are really lucky that we are living in, a, in an era that seems to be like the golden era of machine learning research. Um, and uh, you, you actually get, are going to get to see uh, the things that we work on change society. I think that's super exciting. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so, so to me, you know, my, my kind of, you know, I want to drive, I want to help drive that change. I love that. I love that. So my favorite question, the whole, you know, my favorite question on the planet is uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? So what's kind of driving you to, obviously you kind of answered part of that, but, but for, for, for Charles, what's, what's driving you to get out of bed, to deal with some of the, the chaos that, that uh, all that being a startup founder is and, and, you know, what is it that, that's driving you? Frustration. I always answer this. <laughs> I ask this question a lot and I always answer the question the same way. It's frustration. Um, I think that there's kind of tend to be like uh, maybe like three types of founder of startup founder. Um, there's uh, just money driven founder just wants money. Uh, that's not me. Um, then there is sort of a visionary founder who is like just super optimistic, visionary, you know, thinking about the future. And that's not really me either. Um, then there's this kind of like frustration. There's something that you feel like is inherently wrong with the way things are currently done. And you're trying, your, your startup is really an attempt to fix it. Like that is me. Um, I don't like the way a lot of things are done within this area of research. I think that, uh, people are, we are not moving medical research forward as quickly as we could if we really adopted new technologies uh, at, at the right pace, um, that we developed and adopted and, and invented uh, new technologies, that that was considered to be important uh, within the field. I think that the more that was invested in that, uh, the faster things would go and the more we could do for patients. So the fact that, you know, adoption of new technologies within medical research and biology is so incredibly slow. I mean, it is really slow compared to other areas of, of society. I, it frustrates me uh, immensely. <laughs> so, so, so that is, that is 100% what drives me is that frustration in how slow these things are adopted 
And, you know, it leads, it's a, that's a direct line from that feeling to our work at Unlearn, not only in the sense that we're trying to drive technological progress and invent new things, but we are really heavily focused on how we can find the right places to apply these technologies that, you know, uh, solve real pain points for medical researchers and for patients. Um, and that work, like, it's really critical that today, I think that's when people ask me about, like, you asked me earlier about whether people are skeptical, not skeptical, but like uh, the thing that you said about big pharma, people view big pharma as bad. And now maybe same, some people also view AI research as bad. Um, good a AI research in which people develop models that work and apply them in things that work is good. The danger is that people develop crappy models and apply them in ways that create crappy products. I think that's the danger. Um, and so it's really important in order to, to actually get adoption of these new methods within biology, they have to work. <laughs> I think that's the most important. That's the most important thing. Uh, so those are the things that drive me. It's that frustration. Uh, really, just makes me want to build a technology here that really works and that really moves the needle, so that people start to see the value in it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, Charles, uh, for for a guy who uh, I think got a one on my AP chemistry exam back in high school, um, you have been a uh, eye opening and also just an amazing person to talk to and just kind of get a glimpse into your world. So thank you. Seriously, this podcast has been awesome. Um, for people that want to follow along with uh, what you got going on, learn more about the company or unlearn more about the company, if you will, uh, what's what's the best way for them to reach out to to you or follow along or uh, yeah, just stay in touch with what you guys got going on. Um, well, you can just reach out to us, uh, you know, through our website if you want to talk about, you know, uh, employment opportunities or partnerships or anything like that. Otherwise, you know, Twitter uh, at Unlearn AI uh, is a, just a great place to follow on with updates from the company. I love it. I love it. Well, Charles, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well, too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.